Dear Father, we are thankful, Lord, for the ways in which you use the modest efforts that we bring to serving you. For what can you get from us, Father? What do you need that you don't already have? Um, And yet, Father, you have opened the door for us to serve you. You've equipped us for it, called us for it, uh, called us to do it, and given us opportunity. And it is such an honor, such a privilege, such a joy, Father, to serve you. That's why Christ said your burden would be light. It's not that it isn't a burden, that it doesn't require effort or time or dedication. It does. You call us to do those things. But the lifting is so easy, Father, because you've paved the path. You've set up all the necessary pieces so that when we follow you, it all works. And we're thankful, Lord, for that. And tonight, with this dedicated and loving group that comes together weekly, we have another opportunity to take a step on that path and to serve you as you call us to do so in the service of the ministry of your word, to teach it, to understand it, to live it out. I pray, Father, we would do all three things tonight and in the days to come as we listen at the feet of our Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we move forward today in chapter 5. Paul is continuing to give instruction to Timothy on preserving the respect and the dignity of of the believers that are under his care in the church in Ephesus. We left off in the middle last week of a discussion on widows in the church. That discussion continues a little bit further tonight. But as you remember, I said last week, we may be talking about widows, but the themes and the principles that underlie what he's teaching about widows are universal. And in fact, they're, they're somewhat obvious, which will raise some questions we'll address tonight. Paul, in general, is trying to get Timothy to instill a culture within the church of respect for one another, of consideration for one another, and of honor for everyone as they are due. Those in need should receive support without shame. Those with means should shoulder the burden of others who need their help. And in short, everyone should operate in a loving manner. But it is not loving to place a burden on another person when you have other options. And it is not loving to neglect the financial needs of a family member when you have the means to support them. And it is not loving to accept financial support from the body and yet make no effort to thank them or to serve them in some sacrificial way with your spiritual gift. And it is not loving to act in selfish ways and act in ungodly ways while expecting others in the church to support your selfish lifestyle. Those are the issues Paul raised already in dealing with widows. It does say a lot about the church in Ephesus when you think about it that Paul even had the need to explain these things to the church at the hearing of the summary I just gave anyone should respond well of course the sensibility of all of his advice would seem obvious to anyone right and yet Paul felt the need to have to go through these things with the church in Ephesus so that would suggest that the believers in Ephesus were carnal were immature at least in these areas now their weaknesses were a little different in some respect from those that you see in the letter written to the church in Corinth another carnal church But nonetheless, it seems the church that Timothy stewarded seemed to struggle with attitudes about wealth and honor and propriety. And that's why we're seeing Paul spend a good deal of time in chapter 5 on these issues. And these behaviors in Ephesus are persisting even after Paul spent years working in this city and living in this city. Never mind the fact that he brought up Timothy to lead it in his absence. And yet here you are seeing him have to write about it. It's a sobering reminder that even when we're being taught by the best, in the case of Paul... You still need the Word of God as an anchor to hold the soul to that teaching. So without the letter, i.e. the Word of God, whatever they heard went in one ear and apparently went out the other. So they needed to have this in physical form. I suspect that explains why Paul repeated his comment in verse 7 where we left off last week when he said to Timothy, prescribe these things. 
it wasn't enough that Timothy just know these truths or that he would even just share them casually with the church. He had to make them requirements. Remember, that's what the word to prescribe something means to make a rule, to enforce it. Because once something is prescribed, you now have a means for discipline, for holding people accountable. And in the case of violations, Timothy had to apply some discipline. Paul's now going to talk about that. So as a point of departure for today's teaching, just remember, there is a role in the church for prescribing correct behavior and, as necessary, appointing discipline in cases where behavior departs from that rule. There is a place for that. And even in our modern libertarian Western church where we like to think everybody can do whatever they want, and if they don't like what's going on in one church, they can walk down the street to another church, that freedom, so to speak, is not conducive to godliness. We have to be willing to be held accountable to somebody who is truly an authority in our life, who we agree is a God-appointed authority. And when they tell us to do something that we should do but don't like doing, that's your test. That's our moment of opportunity to tell whether or not we truly have a desire to follow God or just to follow ourselves. And obviously this church needed that kind of guidance to avoid damaging fellowship. So we pick up there, verse 8, continuing in Paul's instructions. Again, concerning widows, but not exclusively for the sake of widows. There's some general principles here that we can apply to other situations. So verse 8, Paul says, If anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. A widow is to be put on the list only if she is not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man, having a reputation for good works, and if she has brought up children, if she has shown hospitality to strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has assisted those in distress, and if she has devoted herself to every good work. Now, remember last week when we looked earlier in this chapter, we learned there that there were some widows in the church that were destitute because family members weren't providing for them. And Paul called out that situation, said it was unacceptable. And Paul said, and I think it was in verse 4, that a widow with family to care for her should be seeking to support her before the church should step into that gap. Right? He didn't distinguish, by the way, back in verse 4, he didn't distinguish between believing or unbelieving family members. So I presume... If we're talking here about a believing widow who's been abandoned by unbelieving family members, well then in that case the church would just step into the gap without any more expectation. But the real problem would come in cases in which you have a believing widow who has been abandoned by a believing family, thinking that, well, we don't have to take care of this, the church is here, the church will take care of her. In that case, Paul prescribed earlier that the believing family should be called upon to do the right thing vis-a-vis their widow by the church leadership. The church should go to that family and say, you know, step up to the bar here and take care of your family. But now in verse 8, he adds, a judgment exists, or judgment is to be understood upon those believing families, I would assume, that fail to obey this command. And he admonishes the one who has responsibility, he says, over his own household. That would refer to immediate family members, obviously. And then he adds, before that, to his own. He says, to his own, especially his own family. To his own, and would then refer in general to extended family members under the authority or under the financial responsibility of a person. So obviously you care for those in your immediate family. That should go without saying. And in Paul's day, it was also customary for a man to assume responsibility for a widowed or orphaned extended family member if there was no one else to care for them, much in the same way that Boaz assumed responsibility to care for Naomi. That same concern existed in Paul's day. So the fact that you have Paul here Having to mention this requirement, that's a bit of a shock, isn't it? It would show us how far this church has slipped into unhealthy behaviors that he even felt the obligation to have to remind people, hey, by the way, you should take care of your own family. 
That shouldn't be something the church has to be reminded of, you would think. And then Paul says those who fail to do this, to provide this kind of standard of care, this, this expected standard of care in their family, they are doing two things. They are denying the faith and they are worse than unbelievers. Now, in the context of 1 Timothy, and for that matter, with the context of all Scripture, you and I know Paul is not speaking here in terms of effect, uh, soteriological outcomes, you know, eternal outcomes. He's talking here in terms of the witness of themselves and on the church. That is, a person who behaves in such terrible ways is denying the effect of their faith. Their faith has a purpose. Your faith has a purpose in God's economy. That is, he didn't save you just because you look good or... He thought that heaven would be that much better with you. It has nothing to do with you or me. The purpose is ultimately directed to the glory of Christ. Believers are lights, Jesus calls us. And he says your light was intended to shine in such a way that it would glorify the Father. Matthew 5.16, Jesus says, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So our light is the life of faith lived out. In good works. So that when we fail to live according to Christ's expectations, we effectively deny faith's purpose in our life. We deny our own confession by a walk that is not according to the talk. And we deny the Lord an opportunity to be glorified through our lives. That's what denying the faith means. It doesn't mean, in some soteriological sense, going from believer to unbeliever. As I said, keeping in mind the context of Scripture overall, that's not possible. That doesn't happen. You are, by God's work in your heart, made new in Christ. And that work done by God in the Spirit is not something you have control over coming in or going out, so to speak. That's not an act of will or an act of thought. That's an act of spirit God does to you. And faith is the means by which he does it. So we're talking here about the effect of your faith. Keep in mind, an unbeliever would have no opportunity to deny the faith in this sense. Only one who has a relationship with Christ can cast shame on him through bad behavior. No more than if you saw someone else's child throwing a temper tantrum in the grocery store, does that reflect shame on you? You don't care. You just walk away. Same for the faith. An unbeliever can't cast shame on Christ, can't tread the blood of Christ. An unbeliever can't do anything to shame someone they have no relationship with. If that were true, then every unbeliever would be doing that constantly because that's the nature of unbelievers. No, only a person who is first Christ can then be someone in a position to have their behavior reflect poorly on Christ, to shame him, to deny the faith. And that's why Paul says that a believer who fails to care for his family is worse than an unbeliever who fails to care for his family. Paul is speaking of a case in where you have a believer who chooses to advocate their responsibility toward their own family while expecting the church body to carry that burden. And Paul says that kind of behavior, that self-evidently unloving behavior to your own family, and by the way, to your church family, because you're burdening them unnecessarily, all of that is a worse outcome for the church than when unbelievers do the same thing because your behavior brings shame to Christ when theirs can't. Your behavior is a repudiation of the values and the teaching and the expectations of a Lord who has already saved you by grace. So the world will see a Christian's callous behavior toward his or her family and it may cause them to question the value of having a relationship with Christ. I mean, after all, if you have a relationship with Christ and it leads you to do such terrible things to your family, why would I want to have the same thing you have? They may wonder why a devotee to this new religion could find reason to neglect even the most basic human responsibilities. That's why Paul is saying it's worse than if you were an unbeliever. As Christians, friends, we have to develop the same thought process, guiding our own choices, our own behaviors. And that is to say we should be asking ourselves, are we acting in a way that is worse than an unbeliever? 
Even if you do exactly the same thing the unbelieving world does. You're worse than an unbeliever if your behavior has the potential to cast shame on Christ. So when you apply that standard in your thinking, I think you'll find yourself reevaluating choices that you make and perhaps coming to different decisions because you realize the bar has been raised in that respect and we have to live up to it. So that leads Paul to expand now on his earlier list of qualifications for widows who wanted to receive support from the church. Remember earlier in this chapter, Paul said a widow who was seeking support had to pass four basic tests, four basic qualifications. They were, she had to be a believer, she had to have no other visible means of support, that is, she had to be a widow indeed, he said. They had to be willing to serve the church in their spiritual gift to repay back in that sense what they were receiving, and they could not turn that charity into an excuse to live a life of wanton sin, just living up on the church's dollar. Now in verses 9 and 10, Paul adds three specific tests that ride alongside these other four qualifications, and these are intended to prevent abuse. You could have somebody who meets the first four tests, but by these standards, they disqualify themselves. First, Paul says, there's an age threshold for being added to the list of people eligible for support. That age is 60, he says, because in ancient times, 60 was the commonly considered age of elderly. And the reason is because it represented an age when men and women were slowing down and therefore they were less able to provide for themselves. Remember, the idea is if you can't work for yourself, then and only then were you deemed a widow indeed, as he said. So today the age may be different, right? We may have ages, what, 65, 55? I mean, depending on whether you want the discount at Luby's or whether you're just trying to get Social Security, it moves around. It's all the same, though. The issue here is when are you reasonably past the years of providing for yourself? That was the first test. Secondly, she must have been the wife of one man. And that phrase in the Greek is written in a very similar way to the requirement that we saw earlier for elders, for overseers. Remember this? A one-woman man. This is a one-man woman. So it implies exactly the same requirement. And if you look back at what we said at that time, we said that Paul was calling for a man who lived a moral marriage. And similarly here, a woman who is living a moral married life. Thirdly, the widow must have a reputation for good works and be willing to devote herself to performing good works on behalf of the church. This is a little different than the earlier requirement. We said the earlier requirement was one of a woman who was willing to repay the church in a spiritual way. This is not talking about spiritual works. This is talking about physical works, good deeds. And here you want someone who has a reputation of doing good deeds. He gives examples. A mother who works raising her children, or a woman who's eager to open her home with hospitality to strangers, or doing selfless works in service to the body of Christ. He wants a woman who has a history, a pattern, of living a life of good works. And here's why. Because as he ends that phrase, he says she is now going to be called to devote herself to doing that for the rest of her life to the benefit of the body. In other words, she's going to get hired. Remember, these tests are not requirements for individual charity or support. Any believer can choose to help any fellow believer without restrictions anytime you want. You see someone who needs something, you want to help them, help them. This has no bearing on that. And James, by the way, says we should act in that kind of way. We should be open to that kind of charitable behavior. But when the time comes for the corporate body to support a single member with the corporate resources of that body... Well, then, yes, you do want strict tests because you want to prevent abuse. So how would we apply these three tests today? Well, the answer is pretty much the same way Paul expected us to apply them in his day. A widow in the church expecting support should be someone who, first, is truly in a state of dependence, and she is a godly example to the church so that she is perceived of deserving that kind of support. That's really the summation of everything you said. So today, if we were to follow Paul's advice in applying his tests, at least in principle, if not always in detail, 
You might ask questions like, is the need sincere? Is the need justified? Is the recipient worthy in conduct and in testimony? And what are reasonable expectations for that recipient to repay the support they're receiving in service to the body or in some other reasonable way, given their means and their opportunity? Now, it may feel harsh at first when you hear of these kinds of things being applied, these standards being set, since it means that in some cases we're going to have to say no to people who seek support but can't pass some of these tests, right? The person whose life isn't quite up to the standards that Paul is expecting. And so if you're concerned that the church would be unloving in that case or unkind under those circumstances, then you're forgetting the dangers involved. Love is not defined as giving people what they desire. If you're a parent, you already know this. Love is defined as doing what's best for someone. And giving someone charity who doesn't warrant it is not loving. Not in the least. Because it gives opportunity for their sin nature and it puts a burden on others unfairly. That's exactly why Paul goes forward in verse 11 through 13 to mention this concern. He says in verse 11, But refuse to put younger widows on the list. For when they feel sensual desires in disregard of Christ, they want to get married, thus incurring condemnation. Because they have set aside their previous pledge. At the same time, they also learn to be idle. As they go around from house to house. And not merely idle, but also gossips and busybodies. Talking about things not proper to mention. Paul specifically demanded earlier that younger widows, that is under 60, would not be put on the list. And his reason is here. His reason is that these younger women are naturally inclined to develop a desire for companionship. They're still young enough, in other words. They're not expecting at this point in their life to be completely beyond opportunity. And as such, they're likely to find a suitor, and what naturally follows would lead to them wanting to marry. And when they do that, Paul says they're going to turn aside, it says, in disregard of Christ, turn aside from their previous pledge. We're coming to understand here that the church's offer of charity to widows was not charity at all, as I said earlier. In effect, they were hiring widows as servants to the body of Christ. These women then were being asked to pledge that they would serve the body of Christ in return for that support and to do so for the rest of their lives. You could argue in a sense they were marrying the church, not in a literal sense, of course, but in a practical sense, they're foregoing any service to a man in his home or in any kind of family setting, and they're saying, I'm going to serve the body now. They're my family. I see this is my last function in life, my last stage of life, and it's going to be a glorious way to serve out the rest of my years. And in return, the church is going to take care of my needs. I'll have none of that concern. No one's forcing them to do it. It's completely voluntary. If they want the support, it's a reasonable exchange of service. If the church extended that opportunity to really young women, 50, I'm 51, so 50 is a really young woman, 50, 45, because their husband died and they find themselves, as most women in that culture would have found themselves, in dire need of support. If the church extended that opportunity, and they did that, in effect, those younger women would be pledging disingenuously to serve the church forever just to get the support knowing that they would back out of it when a better offer came along. You've really set up the women for sin. You've made them have to do something to get their needs met in the moment. But in the back of their mind, they have no reasonable expectation to keep that pledge the rest of their life, especially if they're pretty young. So Paul says that kind of behavior would bring condemnation upon them, meaning from the congregation that pledged to support them. You get a sense of how serious the pledge was in these days, too, by the way. We think of the word as little more than an inclination. But in their day, it was a very serious thing. It was solemn. 
And to go back on your pledge was a solemn thing. This is why Jesus said, don't swear anything. Just make your yeses yes and your noes no, because when you swear something, you're bound to it now in a way that you can't change your mind, not without sin. Furthermore, in the years they wait for that husband to carry them away, Paul says, well, now they can just sort of sit back. They have a life of idleness. They got a church pension, basically. And in younger women's hands, and I assume this is not so much a matter of gender, just of age, younger person, idle hands are a devil's workshop, as the saying goes. So Paul says such women will just end up falling victim to their own weaknesses. They'll find that idle time filled in unhealthy ways. And I think his concern for women exposes biblical principles for godliness that are common to all human beings. First, charity extended absent legitimate need is harmful to the individual, not helpful. It encourages deception to get the charity, potentially, and it encourages a selfishness born out of greed once they have it. And then secondly, working to support oneself is a healthy and therefore a necessary contributor to godliness. Conversely, idleness and ease of living is a recipe for encouraging sinful flesh, and those principles remain true independent of your wealth. So our lives, by Scripture's command, are to remain forever engaged in serving the Lord and in providing for ourselves as a means of godliness for as long as we have the stamina to do so. And when we reach later stages of life, and retirement kicks in as our culture has adopted it, there's no retirement in the Bible. There can be retirement from your job because your job just has an age limit or you prefer to stop working and you know, more power to you. But there's no true retirement. You're supposed to work to serve the Lord till you fall over dead. And you'll enjoy it that way, by the way. You'll be a lot more content to the last day. You're supposed to serve all the way through, redirecting your time into serving the body of Christ. So to the extent you free yourself from vocational labors, supporting your financial need, just transfer every one of those minutes as you can into the service of the Lord in some new way. And that's your purpose in life. That's the only reason you haven't gone to heaven yet. There's still something waiting for you here. Always serving, never idle. Not always busy. It's a different thing. Just not idle. And Paul explains in suggesting the better course now for younger widows, he explains what he thinks the better course would be in verse 14. He says, Therefore, I want younger widows to get married, bear children, keep house, and give the enemy no occasion for reproach. For some have already turned aside to follow Satan. If any woman who is a believer has dependent widows, she must assist them, and the church must not be burdened, so that it may assist those who are widows indeed. Paul's prescription for young women, young believing widows, it gets portrayed at times as insensitive and even misogynistic, certainly by our modern enlightened culture. In reality, though, his advice here is both sensible and I think timeless. First, he asks that young widows seek to remarry and return to the calling of wife and mother. And those were not lesser roles in society, though I think they're portrayed that way today sometimes. Instead, that was the highest honor a woman could possess because it's a unique role of women. You cannot delegate your role or your opportunity to bear children. And in that respect, raising them is still inherently a woman's natural gift. Certainly a man participates in that to a large degree as well. But there's only so much a man can do that a woman can hand him in what she does, especially with a very young child. So Paul's point here is that young widows do not need to give up on their hope in life just because they've lost their first husband. That They may have another opportunity at the same. She can still aspire to the same dreams that she may have had as a young girl. And that approach held the greatest possibility for helping her avoid the schemes of the enemies, particularly in Paul's day. 
Paul is certainly not advocating from a scriptural point of view that women only should serve in the home. I know that sometimes is how this gets played. I don't think that's the intent at all. There's plenty of scripture to support a different conclusion elsewhere. The Proverbs 31 woman is probably the most obvious one. Many of you know it. But in general, anytime we operate outside the course that God has appointed for us, both individually and in, to some extent by gender roles, then we are operating on the enemy's ground. We just don't realize it. Gender roles have always been flexible to a point, both now and in biblical days. But the Lord designed the family and the marriage to operate in a certain way according to his purposes and wisdom. And the enemy would love nothing better than to see those assignments tossed out the window and all of us just decide to do whatever we want to do. He would love us to do that. In this case, Paul is expecting young women to return to the normal aspirations for any woman in his day, which was to marry and to raise a family. And then he added in verse 14, to keep house. That one throws a lot of people off. In Greek, it just means to rule over a household. Literally, that's what it says, to rule over the household. Paul's speaking here about the duties associated with running a home, which was the woman's area of authority and responsibility. This wasn't a minor thing. This wasn't dusting off tables and rearranging china. This is about the industry of the home, from managing of the food and how it was procured, how it was prepared, ordering around the servants they might have in the home, dealing with the children, of course, working with hiring workmen that might be needed at the home. If the home was part of a business like a farm or some other enterprise, then the mother might have a good deal to say about how that business was run in the home. Again, Proverbs 31, go read Proverbs 31, and you'll see that a woman who is industrious and efficient and organized and a hard worker and all of these traits are praised in Proverbs 31, even as she goes about caring for her home and doing business outside the home in both circles. That's what God is asking from anyone who is intent on doing well in their assigned role. What she doesn't do is say, you know what, I'm above all of this. I'm just going to throw all this stuff out the window, let someone else worry about it. I'm liberated and I can just ignore that that's what God's asked me to do. And that, unfortunately, is the world's view today. If a young woman resisted marriage and yet continued to burn with desire, as Paul has said elsewhere, she was tempting fate. The fate she's tempting is, can you live single the rest of your life without sinning sexually? That's hard to do, especially if you're really young. And that's Paul's concern. In fact, Paul said some had failed at this already. They had turned aside to Satan, he put it, which is a veiled reference to probably promiscuity in some form. Or it may have referred to young women who broke that pledge, as he mentioned earlier. Either way, it reminds us that charity extended under the wrong circumstances is hurtful, not helpful. In fact, reserving charity for the most needy and worthy is so important that even a woman, he says, with dependent widows must take care of those widows herself. That's interesting, isn't it? This is a classic Ruth-Naomi situation. So after Ruth, the younger woman, remarried, she still was the woman to care for her mother-in-law, the widow, and not expect someone else to have to pick up that tab. If that situation happens in the church, Paul says he would expect a younger woman to continue caring for a widow in her family, even if there was no man in the family to make that happen, and to do so before the church stepped in. What Paul is saying is the church must protect its resources to care for the truly needy, and as a result, we aren't going to give special privilege to anyone under any circumstances. We want the needy to get it only. And with that, we leave behind the discussion of widows. So with that, we move on now to the treatment of another group of people, really at the opposite end of the spectrum in the church, and that is the elders. First Timothy 5.17, Paul writes, The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Based on Paul's comments about widows, 
it's safe to assume the church was too charitable in granting support to that class within the church, right? Or so it would seem. That is, widows were getting it too easily. So Paul puts some rules on it. Well, by the same token, now based on what we're reading, it seems like the church was not being charitable enough toward this other class of members, that is, their elders. So elders in this case, again, refer to those who rule over the church, the overseers, like we talked about earlier. And those who rule well, Paul says, are worthy of double honor. Now, Paul is not establishing a scale here for judging elders' worthiness. Those who are well and those who don't do well. In Greek, it literally just reads, well-ruling elders. So Paul is saying that all faithful elders are deserving of double honor, as opposed to the elders who are not doing their job. But any who are just normal, faithful, well-ruling elders, they're deserving of double honor. And double here is not a comparison among elders, as if some elders would get one portion and another elder would get double portion. That's not it at all. It's between elders and non-elders. That is, the degree of honor that you would routinely show another brother or sister in the body of Christ should be, quote, doubled for the honor you would show your leaders or your elders. And specifically, Paul says in verse 18 that the honor we show these men should include financial support. While widows were getting unwarranted support, the elders in Ephesus, it appears, weren't receiving enough support. Supporting ministry leaders is a principle, and Paul echoes it here and again elsewhere in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And here's how you can summarize it. Simply put, any man devoted to ruling and teaching the church is worthy of our financial support. In verse 18, Paul quotes both from the Old and from the New Testament to prove his point. The first part of that quote is taken from Deuteronomy 25, the one about the oxen. In Deuteronomy 25.4, you find it written that a farmer in Israel, this is the law, right, given to Israel, that a farmer in Israel could not muzzle his ox, that is, put one of those leather face masks over the animal that prevented it from being able to eat. You could not muzzle an ox while it was threshing. Threshing was the way you separated the grain seed from the husk that surrounded it, coming off of a, like a wheat stalk, for example. Now, the best way to do that was to take all the stalks of grain you had taken out of the field, and you lay them all down on a very flat, hard surface, usually a rock. And then a large, heavy animal, like an ox, would be led by a bridle to trample over the stalks of grain in a circle. They tie it usually to a post, and they lead it, and it would just walk in a circle on that post, and its feet would just crush... And the grain seeds were strong enough to remain intact under the pressure of the ox hooves, but the hooves would separate the chaff. It would knock the chaff off of, the, off of those seeds. And so you have them tied to a pole, walk in the circles, and as they walked around each revolution, they would throw more grain in front of him, and then after he's treaded over it, they'd be sweeping the old one off, and then you have this operation going on around this moving animal. Well, the process goes on for hours, and the ox moving a circle around this pole the whole time. Obviously, an ox that's working is going to get hungry. And what does an ox eat? The stuff he's walking on. So the temptation for that ox is to look down and go, dinner, right there in front of me. And start nibbling on the stuff that you're leading him to crush, right? So he might occasionally stop, bend down, eat some of the grain, get a little energy out of that. But if a farmer wanted to prevent the ox from eating the grain he's trying to harvest, he could put a muzzle on the mouth of the ox. But in the law, now this is in the law of God, the people were commanded not to do that. Not to put a muzzle on their ox when they thresh. Now, the Lord's chief concern in Deuteronomy 25 was not for the welfare of the oxen. The chief concern was for the sake of his people. First, it was beneficial to the farmer that his ox was well-fed and strong while he performed all that work, right? That little bit, think about this, that little bit of grain that that animal was eating provided enough energy for that animal that he could thresh an entire field of grain for the farmer. 
If the animal was weak, though, well, he's not going to get very much threshing done, right? So to starve an animal in hope of saving a few buckets of grain or whatever that animal might eat would end up losing the opportunity to harvest an entire field of grain. That's penny-wise and pound-foolish. It's just silly, right? That was the logic. But more importantly, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9 that the law that we were talking about here was also intended to be a useful illustration in how the people of God are supposed to support the ministers that God sends them. Like the ox, a workman should be expected to give his work in the hope of receiving something in return of that work. Workmen share in what they work to produce, just as an ox shares in the grain that it helped to glean. It's not a burden, it's their right. Then Paul quotes a second scripture. He says, a laborer is worthy of his wages. It is possible that Paul was actually quoting Jesus directly because Jesus makes this statement as recorded in Matthew 10. By the time Paul wrote this letter, the Gospel of Matthew had already been written. So it's quite possible that Paul is actually quoting existing New Testament scripture. And if that's true, this would be the earliest known verification of one New Testament book by another as scripture. What Paul's saying in the second case verifies the same truth. When someone does labor on our behalf, we have a moral obligation to compensate them for that work. If you're willing to follow that rule without exception for the sake of a day laborer or a handyman that you hire to come around and do odd jobs at your house, a house that's going to perish one day, then how much more so should we do that for the sake of those who serve us spiritually with eternal things that will never perish? So those who rule and teach in the church, Paul says, should be given utmost respect, double honor, in keeping with the difficult and important role that they play. And I should say, by the way, that being an elder, being a pastor, being a teacher in a church is a tough job. You're guarding souls, if you do it well. And you're going to have to wrestle with the sin of others, even when they aren't wrestling with it themselves. And you have to clean up the messes that other people make in their lives and in the church. And they have to come alongside and encourage people they don't particularly like. If that's a surprise to anybody in here, let me shock you. But pastors have people they don't prefer in the church. But that can't get in the way of them helping or guiding or counseling them. So in other words, we have good reason to honor them for the work they do. Moreover, Paul says those who work hard at teaching and preaching are especially worthy of this honor. And the reason simply reflects the importance of the word of God itself. Understanding the scriptures is the key to unlocking a life of godliness that pleases the Lord. So it shows you how much the Lord values his word that he would say those who preach and teach well are the ones we especially want to see honored. And of course, Paul adds that those deserving of our honor are those who actually serve in the roles as they should, like those who serve well as elders or those who work hard, he says, at preaching and teaching. In other words, the pastor or the elder who operates beneath his office is not worthy of honor at all. A teacher who lacks diligence or care in handling God's word is not to be honored in the least. Or an elder who does not guard the flock or abuses his power is unworthy of any honor. So it's not a matter of degrees. It's either double honor or nothing based on whether they fulfill the duties that they've been given or not. So speaking of misbehaving elders, Paul moves to that topic now. Verse 19, he says, do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Those who continue in sin, rebuke in the presence of all, so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. So this is really in keeping with what he said about showing double honor. So Paul says, uh, in keeping with his teaching on double honor, that by warning the congregation, um, I'm sorry, Paul begins here by warning the congregation against undermining its leaders. That's where he starts, sorry. So in keeping with what he said about showing double honor, when it comes to rebuking elders, he starts with, 
show uh, a great deal of deference here and work hard not to undermine them. That the church is not like another institution where leaders can just come or go at the whims of the people. An elder is a person assigned responsibility by the Spirit of God. And as such, we must take caution when entertaining accusations against such a person. And in short, we don't act on them unless we have probable cause. In the law given Israel, the basis for probable cause was a plurality of witnesses willing to testify to the charge. So the Bible says two or three. One witness was not probable cause because one person's testimony could be untrustworthy or could be a false accusation. But by the same token, more than three people willing to come and make a charge, that was seen as conspiracy. By our standards, we may choose to do it differently. That's fine. But the principle stays the same. You want good evidence to support an accusation before you move forward against someone who's a leader in the church because even just an investigation brings the possibility of ruining somebody's reputation. We don't want to take that risk with our leaders unless it's warranted. Furthermore, an elder's role will necessitate that they have to make difficult decisions at times. And when you have to make tough decisions in a church, including acting against misbehaving church members, well, you're going to have a target on your chest because you're going to make enemies in the body of Christ pretty easily when you're in a leadership role, if you're doing your job right over time. By enemies, I don't mean that we encourage that kind of discontent. I mean the person who's unhappy with the fact that they've been rebuked or that they didn't get things done the way they wanted and they don't have the maturity to handle that well. They then become an enemy of the elder. And, by the way, you should also add to that list the enemy himself, Satan, is going to take pot shots at church leaders. So you have to protect them from false accusations, even as you're holding them to high standards. But, of course, some are going to fall, some are going to fail. And when they do, they have to be corrected. But you notice how Paul deals with that when he gets to that point in verse 20. He moves directly to if an elder continues in sin. He skips over the first case of what you would do at the moment you discover that there is a truthful accusation, right? And of course he skips over it because all elders sin. That's not going to be a surprise. You know, it's not a shock that we found out that there's somebody who can make an accusation against an elder. That in itself is not the problem, nor is it a cause for dismissal in and of itself, although some forms of sin may be so serious that they warrant a severe response. In general, though, we know our elders and teachers err. But the test is, how do they handle correction? Jesus himself gave us the proper pattern for correcting sinning brothers and sisters in Matthew 18. And if you follow the steps that he prescribes in that chapter, you follow them for everyone, including elders. And so if you bring an accusation to an elder with two brothers and that elder repents, then the case is closed. But if Paul says an elder continues in sin, so he jumps straight to the next to last step in Jesus' hierarchy of steps from Matthew 18, from Matthew 18, 17. He jumps straight to the next to last step. He says, if you've got an elder who's been confronted and they continue in sin, then he says you take them before the whole church and you publicly rebuke them, which is Jesus' next to last step. Paul is not inventing a new system of discipline for elders. He's just applying the one Jesus gave. And that's Paul's point. An elder who serves properly or well, well, he's worthy of double honor. But an unrepentant, sinning elder gets the same rebuke everyone else gets. We don't hold back in our approach to sin because the person who's under scrutiny is an elder. It is not inconsistent to honor someone above others while holding them to the same standard as everyone else. In fact, Paul adds that rebuking an elder in this way would show the rest of the body of Christ that we promote godliness but we don't excuse ungodliness. It will cause the rest, he says, to become fearful of sinning. 
Paul continues in this vein of partiality in verse 21. He says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. This is Paul's strongest charge to Timothy on this topic. He reinforces it, invoking the the presence of God and Christ and the elect angels to support his charge. Elect angels, by the way, just refers to non-fallen angels, those who did not follow Satan and become demons. So by invoking this charge, he's reinforcing the need for impartiality. And he's saying, any failure on your part to comply with this charge will be known in heaven and it will be judged there. That's what he's saying to Timothy. In other words, a pastor or an elder who rules with partiality is going to hear about it at his judgment. Partiality goes both ways, by the way. We're talking about a pastor or an elder who is partial either because they give favor to some over others or because they refrain from correcting some as strictly as they would others. Double standards. Different rules. This person gives a lot of money to the church, so we're going to kind of look the other way when they do that wrong thing. This other person is a kind of an annoying person in the church. I'm always tired of their nonsense anyways. First opportunity I get, I'm going to put them in their place. It's just natural, right? It's who we are naturally, which is the whole problem. That kind of partiality has no place in the body of Christ because the church isn't supposed to be a place where we come and bring our natural self. The church is supposed to be a place where, by the Spirit working in us, the better side of us is available to edify one another. And if we operate the church on earthly principles, then what is it anymore? So it's natural in the sense that we feel it, but it's not natural in the sense that we condone it. Having just asked Timothy to go out there and set rules for widows and for elders, he's emphasizing to Timothy, you can't start applying all these rules selectively. That kind of favoritism was the chief sin of the Pharisees of Jesus' day. Remember the Bible says they loved money? Jesus said they were lovers of money. They sold their favor to the highest bidder. You remember Jesus' reaction to the men who would place money above service to God? That's when he went into the temple and he made a whip and he beat all the money changers out of the place. So imagine what he has in store for men who curry favor by showing bias in the church. With the topic of elders gone wild, he now moves into the next thought, verse 22. He says, Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily and thereby share responsibility for the sin of others. Keep yourself free from sin. To lay hands on means to confirm the spiritual authority of a leader as determined by the Holy Spirit. In the church today, we take very lightly this idea of elevating men into leadership, whether we call it ordaining or hiring or whatever we want to call it. It's not a substitute for what the Bible prescribes, which is only as the Spirit moves do we lay on hands and assign that authority to someone. And then, having done so, we treat them with that respect, knowing they are God's appointed leader in the church. When you lay on hands, as the Bible expects, the decision to assign leadership authority to a man in the church is not the decision of men. It is a decision God makes. Laying on hands is a human way of acknowledging something that we see God has already done. Now the trick, of course, is knowing that the Spirit has moved in such a way in a particular man's life that we know that we now should lay hands on them. Right? That's the hard part. Not getting ahead of God. And therefore, the simplest approach to not having that problem is to simply wait and watch more about what God is doing in a man's life. Because time will reveal the will of God concerning that man's opportunity to lead in the church. And that's why Paul says here to Timothy, don't go around laying on hands too hastily. The word translated hastily in Greek is simply too soon. That's what it means. Don't lay on hands too soon. Because if you move before God does, then you men are elevating leaders that God himself didn't or may not intend to elevate for himself. 
That elevation then leads men to work in a position of authority outside the Spirit, and therefore they do it only in the weakness of their flesh because they don't have the Spirit of God directing them in that activity. That's a recipe for all kinds of problems in the church, most of which you can see as you look around the church globally, including things like poor instruction or complete biblical illiteracy in the pulpit and among the leadership in in our church. Poor spiritual direction. Scandal, because we let men who have no calling operate in a place in which the worst of themselves can take hold. If a leader makes that kind of mistake, that is, if a leader elevates someone too quickly who's not being called by God, Paul says that leader, the one who elevated the other one, will share responsibility for the sins of others. Sharing responsibility means sharing responsibility for the consequences of whatever sin that inappropriately elevated leader gets himself into. For example, when a man who's been raised into leadership prematurely teaches wrongly, those who ordained him share responsibility for the consequences of all that false teaching that comes out of his mouth. Or the consequences of his poor counsel or his ungodly direction and bad behavior. All of those sins will have consequences for the body of Christ and God says he will hold accountable those who raise up those false leaders. And to an extent then they share in the condemnation of that individual. Therefore, Paul says, Timothy, you better be careful in exercising this rite of passage in the church. Better to delay an ordination than to rush it. After all, a man seeking to be an overseer can still perform all the same acts of ministry for the most part to the body without that ordination. In fact, if the man will only be satisfied to serve if he gets ordained, that's a warning sign in itself. For with the laying on of hands in the church comes significant burdens that no one should seek for lightly. And true selfless dedication to serving God doesn't place undue emphasis on such things anyway. Now at this point it's easy to imagine Timothy. He's reading the letter like we are. And he's a man who's young. We know that. Half Jew, half Greek, not really in one crowd or the other. He's a pastor of questionable pedigree, at least from the perspective of many learned religious elite of his day. He's got to say no to begging widows in his church. He's got to discipline older elders. He's got to refuse to confirm others if they don't meet the tests. You can imagine his ulcers forming in his stomach even as he was reading this letter with what Paul is demanding of him, right? Who would want to be in Timothy's shoes right now? Ministering is difficult enough, but now Paul is asking Timothy to tackle some of the most difficult challenges you'd probably ever face in church life, some of the most tricky political situations. The only topic I think would be more volatile that's not already on the list would be a discussion of worship music style. (laughs) Contemporary or traditional. So appropriately, Paul inserts a little helpful advice to Timothy in verse 23. No longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. (laughs) So a little wine, Jerry, a little wine. I've long suspected that pastoral ministry can lead a man to drink, but now we have biblical support for the notion. Paul advises Timothy here, strengthen yourself. I think that's implied. Strengthening yourself here is implied in the context of what he's just told him to do. I mean, this doesn't come out of nothing. It's not like this just popped into Paul's head. At this point, he may have stepped back, looked at his own writing and said, you know, I've just laid a whole bunch of stuff on this guy. So uh, Before we look at why he's doing it, I want to address a little side topic here just in passing. For anyone who may have heard that the wine references in the New Testament are not actually a reference to the fermented drink, but are actually to unfermented grape juice, let me assure you that is not correct. Throughout the Old and New Testament, references to wine are always, without exception, references to the fermented drink, not to unfermented juice. 
In both Hebrew and Greek, the Bible uses different words for grape juice than it does for wine. They're not the same word. For example, in Numbers, one example, you find both these words used together in the same verse. So you can see that they're distinct. Numbers 6.3 says, He shall abstain from wine and strong drink. He shall drink no vinegar, whether made from wine or strong drink, nor shall he drink any grape juice, nor eat fresh or dried grapes. So in that verse, you find the word wine used in the first half and grape juice used in the second half. These words are different Hebrew words and they have different meanings. So clearly the distinction exists in the language, right? So one refers to alcoholic drink, wine. The other refers to a non-alcoholic drink, grape juice. And so clearly the Bible knows the difference. Secondly, in the New Testament, you find further proof that the word wine refers to an alcoholic beverage. In the story of the wedding in Cana, as you may know, in John, in that story, the head waiter compliments the bridegroom on having served such high-quality wine, and the fact that he served it near the end of the celebration rather than at the beginning caught the attention of this head waiter. And he says this in John 2.9. He says, When the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. He says the tradition at parties is you serve the better wine first so that when the drinkers are thinking clearly, they can discern the difference of the quality and they recognize you serve them something nice. Once they've had a few drinks, though, then the host certifically, what's the word, certifically? Sneakily. (laughs) Surreptitiously. Sneakily brings out, after you've you know, had a little bit to drink, they bring out the poorer stuff when you don't know they've done it. And now few will notice or, or remember the difference because the effects of the earlier alcohol dull their judgment a little bit. The head waiter at the wedding was pleasantly surprised to discover that the new wine, the later wine, was better than the original wine because it was the product of Christ's miracle. And by the circumstances, by the nature of his remark, You have to conclude that the wine in that story was alcoholic, not unfermented grape juice, because no guest would have reason to notice the difference in quality of unfermented grape juice. All grape juice is the same. The only way that story makes any sense is if we're talking about two kinds of fermented drinks, not two kinds of unfermented. No one holds back better grape juice for later. I mean, that doesn't make any sense. Only alcoholic wine varies in quality in this way. So the head waiter was impressed by Jesus' wine-making skills, not his juice-making skills. And then one final nail in this silly coffin. In ancient times, it was virtually impossible to store unfermented grape juice without refrigeration or preservatives, neither of which existed for them. Grape juice sours very quickly and becomes rancid. So in Jesus' day, the only safe way to store the juice of grapes was to ferment it. Because the alcohol in the fermentation, in the wine, prevented the juice from spoiling. And that's why Jews often cut their wine with water when they drank it to diminish the alcoholic effect because they weren't drinking juice. They were drinking wine because it was the drink of the day. It was a safe way to drink. It was a drink that wouldn't spoil. Here's the irony of the whole story. Widespread storage of unfermented grape juice did not become a reality until 1869 when Thomas Welch invented the pasturation of grape juice. But here's why he did it. Welch was a Methodist minister opposed to Christians drinking wine. And what motivated his research into finding a way to preserve unfermented grape juice was because he felt it was a sin to drink communion wine. 
So until his invention, most churches had little choice but to use alcoholic wine for the Lord's Supper because there was no way to store unfermented grape juice. And now the story is completely twisted by people who have the same outlook as he did to say that we were never drinking wine, it was always grape juice. This is just an example of what people are willing to do to hold on to preconceived notions contrary to Scripture and the thought that they're somehow improving on what Jesus did. The fact is, Paul tells Timothy, drink some wine, fermented, alcoholic beverage, which debunks, by the way, any legalistic view that says consumption, even of moderate amounts of wine, is a sin. It's not, never mind the fact that Jesus not only made it, but drank it. Interestingly, though, Paul's instructions imply that Timothy drank nothing beforehand. In a time and a culture when drinking wine was as common as drinking coffee is today, it's odd that Timothy was a teetotaler. That is a bit strange. It could have been merely personal preference or conviction, but if that's true, then it would be hard to imagine Paul recommending him to do behavior contrary to his convictions. I think more likely Paul knew Timothy was abstaining for some other reason, perhaps some spiritual benefit, maybe to set an example of moderation to a culture in Ephesus that was taken away by various excesses. We already knew that. But now, apparently, that lesson, either having been learned or it's gone far enough, now there's some higher priority. And that brings us to the final, most intriguing aspect of Paul's recommendation. It appears that Paul knew, and I guess by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that there were health benefits to be gained for Timothy if he were to drink a little wine now and again. He refers here to Timothy's stomach and other ailments. That might suggest some kind of digestive concerns. Perhaps the mild antiseptic effect of alcohol in the digestive tract would counteract pathogens that he's picking up from the water or somewhere else in the, in the culture. Perhaps it was just to settle and, and relax an overly anxious Timothy who is getting ready to confront widows and elders and all kinds of things, right? Have a little wine, Timothy. Just chill out a little bit. and It'll all be a lot easier after that. Notice he does require only a little wine. That word is there for a reason. Wine in moderation. Clearly wine is good for us, but like any good thing, it has to be used appropriately. And then lastly, Paul gives Timothy a final piece of encouragement to be patient. This will be the end of tonight. 24 and 25, he says, The sins of some men are quite evident, going before them to judgment. For others, their sins follow after. Likewise, also deeds that are good are quite evident, and those which are otherwise cannot be concealed. His point is that some men wear their sins on their sleeve, Their preferred way of sinning is just more obvious than others, perhaps. They're impulsive, they're rude, they're carnal. You know, we can kind of see it coming. Those men, he says, they'll be quite evident. That is to say, you'll have little fear of elevating them prematurely. You'll know them when you see them. In other words, they're going to disqualify themselves soon enough. And Paul says their sins go before them in the judgment. That's a way of saying everyone will know what their judgment has involved. Even before they die, we'll all be talking about, well, wait till that guy sees Jesus. Others, though, their sinful deeds are concealed from our view, although God knows them. Those men or women will only show their true nature to us if you give them enough time and if you get to know them well enough. And in the end, their sin, Paul says, cannot be concealed, either because time or the Spirit will make them known. Similarly, good deeds will be seen for what they are in time. His point is, evaluating men for eldership is a matter of studying them from all angles for a period of time. And in that way, you'll come to appreciate where the Lord is at work, so that you can confirm his choices, so you'll have the leadership you need in place to deal with all of these thorny issues. And have a little wine before you start that process, it sounds like. Heavenly Father, bring us men and women who will lead us properly, who have a heart for you and a heart for your word. Keep them from sin and protect them from the enemy. Help us, Father, to give them the the honor they are due and to support them as they need. And... um, As you raise these men and women up, Father, I pray that
um, they would help turn your church away from the many things that, that uh, try us today, that bring our ch- the church into um, both shame and misfortune and um, that uh, keep us from serving you well, take people out of uh, service to you, Father, disqualifying them. And the many ways in which the enemy has attacked the church of late, I pray, Father, your, your uh, desire for the church would include bringing more men and women who have a hope uh, to serve you well. Let us have their service, Father. Let us have the benefit of their service. And, Father, help us through the, the coming weeks as we come and go in this study. Keep us together. Help us uh, continue to be here as we can and to complete what we've started in both this book and the one to come. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.